Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice open and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Praise be to God. All right. So those are lovely words, huh? Like that, that begins with, you're neither hot nor cold, so I'm just going to vomit you out. Like, I don't even want a part of you. Uh, you know, we, we live in a world that, where it seems like all too often everything is zero sum. Everything is, is all or nothing. And I don't know anybody who enjoys correction. I don't know anybody who enjoys discipline. If there's anybody in this room, raise your hand because I want to talk to you afterward. Like, anybody just love to be criticized and corrected? Um, no, no, no one enjoys it, even when you know it's for your own good. I remember even being in seminary and going through preaching classes. Yes, we have preaching classes. And having your preaching critiqued, you know, you know it's for your own good. You know your professor's not just trying to fail you. But man, when you do something so personal and you get up and then everybody in the class gets to critique your style and what you've said, and it's just, it's painful. I mean, it hurts. And you know it's for your good. You know it's to help you get better. But it's no fun. I mean, it's the same thing with our kids. When either if you have kids or you were a child once, some of y'all in this room have never been children before. I mean, you were born old. But others, you know, you're like, you're still children now, okay? None of us enjoyed being criticized or disciplined when we were children. And if you're a parent, I, I know from personal experience, like, we don't necessarily enjoy correcting our children. And our children don't necessarily enjoy correction. And yet, we know that it is for everyone's good, right? It's for everyone's benefit. The person who doesn't love you and corrects you, you know, is just trying to put you down. But you know that when you're receiving correction from someone who loves you, it really is for your benefit. It's for your good. It's for your building up. And who could love you more than Jesus? Right? Who could love you more than God? But we approach these, these parts of Scripture that are corrective. We approach these critiques and these criticisms from Jesus within the Scripture all too often in the same kind of zero-sum way that we approach criticism from the broader world and from our culture. We assume that God is just, you know, exercising his authority and power and trying to put the thumb down on these Christians. All too often, we look at God as though he's just another person, and we forget that when God critiques his children, he does it because he loves them. In fact, God corrects us because he's rooting for us, right? God corrects us because he wants us to be 
awesome. Right? God wants you to be amazing. He wants you to be awesome. He wants you to be holy as he is holy. And that's not just some impossible moral standard. Holiness is not just some, some impossible standard that you can't live up to, but that God expects you to live up to in order to earn his grace. That's not how this works. As I said before, holiness is who God is. Holy is an adjective that applies only to God. No one and nothing else gets to be holy in and of itself. Everything on earth that is holy is holy only to the extent that it is for and reflects God's character and who he is. And so God wants us to be holy. He wants to make us like himself because that's what he created us for. So when he corrects us, it's to move us toward holiness. It's to move us toward himself. It's to help us to become more like him and reflect his character in the world. And so we have to approach the corrective words of Jesus from that place. We have to approach the corrective words of God to his children from that place of love, from that place of rooting for us. And when you read these words, not as a, a whip lash or as a paddle to the bottom, when you read these words instead as I'm rooting for you and I want you to be the best possible person you can be, when you read these words from a place of God saying to you, I want you to be awesome, I want you to be amazing, I want you to be like me in every way, then all of a sudden they take on a different character. They lose that zero-sum kind of feel that we, that we have to correction in our world, and we learn to receive correction from our God in a place of, of love and of care and of wanting to shepherd us into the right places, wanting to shepherd us into Christ-like character. So that's what Jesus is doing to Laodicea here. So We've been following along. We've been in the book of Revelation. And at the book of Revelation, at the beginning of the book, in the first three chapters, Jesus himself, the risen Jesus, from his throne in heaven, is writing these letters. He's dictating these letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. And this is the last of those churches. And through these letters, we've seen Jesus offer words of correction to his church, to people who say they follow him. We've seen him offer words of encouragement and commendation. Most of the time, through uh, three or four of these, it's a mixed bag. They're getting both praise and correction. And then in a couple, they get nothing but praise. And in a couple, they get nothing but correction. And here we are in Laodicea, this final church of the seven, before we move into the, the really weird stuff in Revelation, and we read Jesus giving correction to these Laodicean Christians. And we must remember that he's giving it for their good and because he wants them to be amazing. In fact, Jesus sees their potential and knows that they're coming nowhere close to it and wants to draw them into the potential that they hold as his followers. And so what we begin with the really harsh words. Right, we begin with Jesus saying, thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. So what Jesus is doing here in the beginning is that word amen, or in Greek, amen, when you read Jesus speaking in the Gospels and he says, truly, truly, or in the King James, he says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, right? he's saying amen, amen. Amen means truly, means rightly, it means as it should be. 
Right? That's why we say amen or amen at the end of a prayer. We pray something and then we say, so be it, or truly. May what I have just prayed be true, come to pass, be reality. And so when Jesus says to this church, look, I am the amen. I am the truth. I am the trueness of the world. What he's saying to them is, hear what I'm about to say because I cannot lie. Jesus is incapable of untruth. He's incapable of criticizing simply for the sake of criticism. And so he wants these Laodicean Christians, who he's going to be pretty hard on, to understand that what he is saying, he is saying not just for the sake of saying it. Jesus never wastes a word. That's why he's the faithful and true witness. We waste words all the time. All the time. We just fill the silence with sound. You know, we've got a problem in our house sometimes where we just kind of talk to talk and it doesn't really mean anything. I'm sure you've never experienced that ever, right? (laughs) We were actually, we were watching an episode of The Office last night and and Jim gets moved to the back of the office and he's there with, um, oh, Kelly Kapoor and he's stuck back there and he's working in his desk and he's trying to get his job done and Kelly is just blah, 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 and you can see Jim just go, I can't get this, you know? That's what we do with our world sometimes. And we're all like Kelly Kapoor. We're all just filling the space with talk. Jesus has never wasted a word, ever. Every word that Jesus utters is life-giving. Every word that Jesus, Jesus utters is weighted with power and authority. And so when Jesus begins this letter to this church saying, I am the faithful and true witness, I am the amen, he's saying, I don't waste words and I don't speak untruthfully, so please listen to what I have to say. Because what I have to say is true. Hear my heart in this, Jesus is saying. He's the originator of God's creation. right? He is the agent by which all things are made. He is the agent by which the whole world has its being. And so Jesus is letting them know, I'm faithful, I'm true, I haven't wasted a word, and I am the very one who created all that you see around you. I am the source of creation. I am the source of what creation ought to be. I know what you should be, church. I know what you should be doing and how you should be living, so please listen to me. This is a faithful and loving appeal from the Lord of the church to say, hear my words, understand my heart in this before you receive my critique. But then he jumps right into it. I know your works. Over and over again in these books, in these letters, Jesus has said, I know your works. And what we have to hear, church, is that our works matter. Throughout all seven of these letters, we have heard Jesus say to these churches, I know your works. That is, I know what you do. You see, there are too many Christians and pastors and churches today that will let you know, if you just believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that's good, that's all you really need, you're done. And you're in and you're safe. What you do after that doesn't really matter. And yet Jesus here is saying, no, no, what you do with your faith in me matters greatly. I know your works. And as I asked last week, right, if Jesus were to come to you and say, I know your works, would you bow your head in shame? Or would you lift your head? Would you be one of these who Jesus then commends and praises? Or would we be one of these who Jesus criticizes? Who Jesus brings correction to? I think for most of us, it would be the middle ground, right? There would be some things to praise and there would be some things that we need correction on. 
But when Jesus comes to us and says, I know your works, we better prick up our ears and listen to our Lord, our master, our King Jesus, who is telling us how to live, how to reflect him in the world. And so he says to them, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm. And so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, when I was growing up in American culture, it was cool to say, I'm on fire for Jesus. Okay, I'm from Tennessee, right? So that's how we said it. You're going to be on fire for Jesus. You know, you go to a tent revival, and that's all it was about. Be on fire for Jesus. Yes, glory. You know, that was, that was how we approached everything in our faith and from, a, from a youth group when I was a kid. And some of y'all have been there. And some of y'all grew up that way. And so we come to this text and we're like, yeah, what Jesus is saying here is he would rather you be cold and turn away from him than to be lukewarm. And then I began to study and I began to grow and I began to learn. And I thought, that's not really in line with the character of God. Right? It's not really in line with the character of God for him to say, I would rather you reject me than have a lukewarm faith. And so it's really amazing that the history of this of this town in Laodicea. You see, Laodicea was built on a hill, and uh, there was a river that kind of ran at the base of the hill, but Laodicea had to import its water from elsewhere. Nearby, there was Hierapolis with its nice hot springs, and you can go now, you can see from, high, from, from Laodicea, you can see the white hills of Hierapolis as the hot springs there kind of spill over, and the sediment from the springs creates this beautiful white hillside. And you can go and you can relax in the hot springs of Hierapolis and kind of take the cure. And that's where Laodicea got its water from. So that nice hot water that's mineral water that's beautiful and, and warm in Hierapolis, by the time it gets to Laodicea, is disgusting. I mean, it's full of sediment and minerals and grossness, and it's lukewarm. It's no longer hot like it was in Hierapolis. And then just down the stream from Laodicea, if you keep going east from Laodicea, you come to the town of Colossae, which you might know from the letter to the Colossian church from our New Testaments. And in Colossae, you had these beautiful, cool springs that were fed by mountain streams. And the water is crisp and cool and clear, and you can bathe in it or you can drink it, and it's just it's wonderful to your body. But of course, in Laodicea, they just have this tepid, lukewarm, nasty, sediment-filled water. So when Jesus says to them, these Laodicean Christians, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold, he's saying, you're not like the water in Hierapolis, which is nice and warm and you can relax in, and you're not like the water in Colossae, which is cool and clear and will quench your thirst, you're just kind of like your water. And Laodiceans, you don't even want to drink your own water. And yet, when I look upon you, when I experience you, I experience you as you experience the water of your town. Jesus is saying, I wish you would either be cool and refreshing like the water in Colossae, or I wish you were warm and refreshing like the water in Hierapolis. But, but you're like your own water. This aqueduct brought in, tepid, gross, sediment-filled, disgusting stuff that you just want to spit out of your mouth, but you don't have a choice because it's all the water you got. That's what Jesus means when he says, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. You see, the church in Laodicea had gotten complacent. They didn't really do anything. They were so reliant on themselves and on their own wealth that they had forgotten their dependence upon God. They'd forgotten their dependence upon Jesus. 
And they, they hadn't been a faithful witness to Jesus. Jesus is the faithful witness, but unlike him, they have not been a faithful witness to the people around them. They've become complacent, reliant on their own wealth, reliant on their own abilities, not reliant on Jesus anymore. And that's why he goes on and says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, for you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, earthquakes had rocked Laodicea, particularly a big one in AD 17. In AD 17, this massive earthquake rocks the whole region, destroys the cities of Sardis and of Philadelphia that we talked about in the past couple weeks, and destroys much of Laodicea too. And when when that earthquake comes through, the Roman Empire, the government of the Roman Empire steps in and they're like, okay, we're going to help you rebuild. So they go to Sardis, and Sardis says, thank you very much, and they rebuild the city. They go to Philadelphia, and Philadelphians say, hey, thank you very much, and they rebuild the city. The government comes to Laodicea and is like, hey, we're going to help you rebuild. And the Laodiceans are like, no, no, we got this. We're cool. We don't need your help. And out of their own purses, out of their own money, they rebuild the city. They're entirely self-reliant. They don't know what it is to depend on anybody or anything else because they're so wealthy, they can afford to rebuild themselves. And so Jesus is saying to these Christians, look, you're just like your culture. You're just like your city. You're self-reliant. Your city rejected the help of the empire, and Jesus is like, I'm here with you, and you're rejecting me too. You act like you don't need me, like you're fine in and of yourselves. And so you say you're rich, but in reality, you're wretched pitiful, poor, blind, you're naked. You don't don't have any of the self-sufficiency that you thought you did. You see, there's no one on this earth who's truly self-made. I hate those two words, self-made. It's such a lie. It's just never been true of anybody. We as humans need one another. We have all received help from someone somewhere. We all rely on other people. Even if you built your business from the ground up, who's paying you? Customers. You need them. Okay, you ain't self-made. You're using roads that were provided for you. You're using infrastructure that was built for you. You have a family that may have supported you. Maybe they didn't, but you went somewhere else for help. No one is truly self-made. It's, it's, an, it's a myth. But these Laodicean Christians, they think they're self-made. They think they've done it. We don't, we don't really need Jesus. We don't really need God because we're, we're fine on our own. We've built it on our own. And Jesus is standing there saying, no, you wouldn't be anything without me. You wouldn't be anything without me calling you in. You wouldn't be anything without one another. Learn to be codependent. Not codependent, interdependent. Not codependence, not independence, interdependence. That's our goal as the church. To understand that we are interdependent on one another and we are utterly dependent on our King Jesus. None of us are self-made. And that's true of these Laodicean Christians. And so Jesus is looking at them and saying, you've become complacent and self-reliant just like the people around you. What differentiates you as the church from anyone else in your society? What differentiates you as followers of Jesus from anybody else in Laodicea? You look like just like everybody else. And yet Jesus has called you to a radically different way of life, Laodiceans. Jesus has called us to a radically different way of life, Christ Community Church. Christian today, follower of Jesus, he has called us to something more, to something better, to something different, to total and utter reliance on him that leads to flourishing for ourselves and our community. God knows that we're not self-made. 
and we never will be. But when we rely on him, when we realize our dependence upon him, that's when we flourish. That's when we grow. That's when we become who he calls us to be, what he's called us to be as a community. And that's when we're truly effective at bringing the change that God wants to see in our world. That's when we're truly effective at living out the love of Christ among our neighbors and seeing wholeness, seeing peace brought to our community, seeing provision, seeing the kingdom of God take root only when we're reliant upon our King Jesus. And that's where he goes next. He says in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. You see, the things that had made Laodicea so wealthy were this black wool that it would export. So, so Laodicea had these, these black sheep that produced this beautiful silky wool that would then be exported throughout the empire. And that brought in just tons of money. And Laodicea was also a medical center. It was a place where you could go to get healing. And a lot of scholars think that Laodicea produced this particular kind of eye salve. And so if you were having eye issues, you would go to Laodicea to receive this salve for your eyes. And it was these things that, that propped up the wealth of Laodicea that caused the self-reliance. And Jesus is saying, look, you Christians, you have been reliant upon the wool. You've been reliant upon the eye salve. You've been reliant on your own wealth, on your own gold, to the extent that you, you haven't been reliant on me. You haven't realized your reliance on me. And so you, you, you've taken comfort in your gold and in your wool and in your salve. You have made these things into idols. You are effectively worshiping the success that you get, the commercial success you get from these things rather than worshiping me, Jesus. And Christian, follower of Jesus, human being, just know, no created thing in this world can bear the weight of your worship. Nothing. Nothing in the world that was created or made can bear the weight of all of our Worship, and yet we worship things other than Jesus all the time. Anything we find our worth and value in other than God Himself, other than Jesus Christ, is an idol, something that we are worshiping, and it cannot bear the weight of our worship. What are you finding your worth in? What do you find your value in? Is it your productivity? Is it your parenting? Is it your, is it your name, your family, the people that you come from? Is it where you live? Is it the American flag? Where do you find your worth and your value? If it's not in Christ, then it is an idol. It is something you are worshiping other than Jesus, and it will not be able to bear the weight of your worship and your identity. Only God can bear the weight of our worship. Only God can bear the pressure of giving us an identity, of calling us by our true name of having all of our reliance put on him. These other things are not bad by any stretch. But if they become ultimate to us, if they're the things that define us and tell us who we are and are the things that we are worshiping, they will crumble underneath us. They will let us down. Right? If your worth and value is primarily in your looks, then you're going to get older. It's going to happen. Right? If it's primarily in your health, at some point that's going to break down. 
If your primary worth and value is in your spouse or that other person that you are putting everything into, they're going to fail. And when they do, what will happen to your worth and value? If it's in your productivity or your, your commercial success, what happens when the money isn't there? Or what happens when you're no longer able to swing that hammer or get into the places to wire that house? Like what, what happens when your body doesn't cooperate to allow you to be successful in that way anymore? What happens when the things of the world break down? When entropy takes its toll and things begin to break down, what happens when you're worshiping them? Where is your foundation? There is only one true, solid, lasting, eternal foundation that will not crumble and will not fail, and that is God himself. If we're not building our lives on him, then our foundations will crumble, and in that day we will lose all hope. God knows this. And so he calls us to take our affection and our identity out of the things of the world and put them into Christ instead. To remove our worship from the things of the world, to put them in their proper place, to to recognize that they're not bad, they're good, but they are not ultimate. And instead, to put our identity and our worship in the one place that will never, ever, ever fail us in Jesus Christ himself. And that's what Jesus is calling these Laodicean Christians to. He knows that their finances will dry up. He knows that the sheep won't always give wool. He knows that the ISAV won't always fix the problem. He knows that the only place to go to find real and true provision is from his hand. And he delights when we go to him for the things that we need. I have known Christians in my life who would say, I don't pray for things for myself. I only pray things for other people. And I go, well, you're really messing up then. Right? God wants you to pray things for yourself. God wants to provide for you. He delights in providing for his kids. I would hate it if my kids never came and asked me for anything. But their coming and asking me for things proves that they trust me and they know that I love them and want to give them good things. And so I love it when they come and ask me. Not when they pester, okay? But when they come and they ask once, and I'm like, yeah, okay, let's take care of that. God loves it when we come to him for our provision. He delights in giving gifts to his children. This doesn't mean you'll get everything you ever ask from God. This doesn't mean that he's going to give you absolutely everything you ever want. Because a lot of the things we want are not actually good for us. But he will give us the things we need to thrive. He'll give us the things that we need to survive, the things we need to live, the things we need to flourish, the things we need to serve him best. He will freely give to us. And so he loves it when we come to him to receive what we need and we're not putting our worth and value in the things of the world. And that's what Jesus is saying here to these guys. Come to me for the stuff you need. Don't try to find it in yourselves or in the world around you. Come to me. I will give it to you. And finally, we come to the, this last piece. And I love these last verses. I love it because Jesus has been so hard. And yet, here he is. Standing, and in in the last verses here, 19 to 22, essentially saying, look, you're not too far gone. Okay, don't take my words of critique, don't take my criticism here as just giving up on you. They're here to build you up. And so Jesus looks to the church and he says, "Uh, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So there he is saying the parental thing, right? I'm rebuking you, I'm disciplining you because I love you. And then this this next verse is just the best, okay? We use this verse evangelistically, but that's not what it means in this context. I want you to see this verse in a new light. So here, verse 19, Jesus ends, So be zealous and repent. And then verse 20, See, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, like I said, a lot of the time we read that verse and we use it kind of evangelistically, like Jesus is standing at your door and knocking, just open and let him in. But Jesus here is talking to a church that is in error. Jesus here is talking to a church who has been complacent and walked away from him, who's not being faithful to him. And it's these people that Jesus says, I'm standing at the door and knocking. Jesus is saying, I want to have fellowship with you. I want to eat at your table. I want to be with you. I want to love you. I want to be part of your family. I want to hold on to you in a way that you've never felt before. And I'm going to be persistent in this. It's not as though we mess up once and Jesus abandons us. It's not as though we, we fail once or we fall off the wagon and Jesus is like, well, there you go, and walks away. When we falter, when we fail, Jesus is right there. God is right there knocking on the door, just waiting for us to open the door. Not so he can switch us. Not so he can hurt us. Not so he can tell us to go you know, cut a switch so he can give us a spanking. He wants us to open the door so he can come in and he can dine with us. In this world that, that Jesus is writing in, in this world that, that John is writing in, there is nothing more intimate between non-spouse people than to eat a meal together. There is nothing more intimate between friends than to sit at table fellowship together. And isn't that true even now, right? The people that you invite into your home to sit around your table and enjoy your home, enjoy your hospitality, aren't they the people you're closest to? Or want to be close to, want to build a relationship with? Jesus is saying, I want to sit at your table. I want to have dinner with you. I want to love you. I want to reach out to you. And so I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking and I'm knocking and it's persistent. He's not going away. When we are in error, it is not that Jesus has given up on us or that God abandons us. He is there longing for us. He desperately wants us to open the door and let him in. Jesus has not given up on you. He's not given up on me. No matter how far we walk away, no matter how far we stray, no matter how complacent and self-reliant we are, no matter how far into the weeds we get ourselves, Jesus is right there rooting us on the whole time. He wants us. I mean, that is the most compelling truth of the good news of Jesus Christ to me. That though God doesn't need me at all, and though I fail him over and over again, and though I am not the person he's called me to be, and though I tarnish his name all too often, he is right there wanting me, wanting my friendship, wanting my fellowship, wanting to be with me. You can't go too far astray. You cannot go so far away that God will not call you back. You cannot walk so far away that Jesus is not still right there knocking on your door, waiting to be let in, not to admonish you, not to hit you, not to hurt you, but to have table fellowship with you, to sit at your table and to dine with you, to be in the most intimate relationship you can have. He loves you and he wants you, even though he doesn't need you, even though you and I have failed him over and over and over again, he wants us. God wants you. Isn't that what the story of Jesus is all about? God wanting the people who were his enemies? So we can't stray too far. And so if you've ever wondered, 
God, is that too many times? I grew up doing this to myself. And it wasn't because of the leaders that I had. It wasn't because of the pastor or preacher I had. It was some of the stuff that I had absorbed as a kid and just in my own mind being very black and white as a kid. Man, I used to go to bed every night terrified that I would end up in hell if I died. If I hadn't confessed every single tiny sin that day, and so I would go to bed when I was 12, 13 years old, I would go to bed and I would just pray throughout, pray, think through my whole day, and I would be praying desperately, God, would you please forgive me of this, 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 and this, and then racking my mind in anxiety, trying to figure out if I had confessed everything, because if I hadn't, what would happen? And I'm ashamed to say that I didn't understand the character of my God then. And I'm so glad he called me back and that I opened that door to let Jesus in to correct my misunderstandings about my God. Because that is simply not true. You can't stray too far. You can't walk away too far. And God is more ready to forgive you than you are to come to him. God is more ready to issue grace to you than you are to step toward him. God is always there and ready. And Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking, saying, please let me in. Not so I can punish you, but so I can eat with you. So we can be the closest of friends. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. As every week we've been talking about these, to conquer here means to be faithful to Jesus. It means simply to open the door to him and let him in. It means to love him and be loved by him. And to faithfully walk with him. And here Jesus is giving the greatest prize we have seen so far. Right here in this text, Jesus is giving us the greatest gift that he has to give. The very throne of God. And he's saying, if you'll conquer, if you'll, if you'll be faithful to me, if you'll open that door and let me in to have fellowship with you, then you will rule with me forever. Little brother, little sister, Jesus says, if you will be faithful to me, I will let you rule and reign with me for all eternity. I will share my throne with you. What kind of king shares a throne? What kind of king's throne is a bench for all of his people to sit on? And yet in the kingdom of God, we know that there's no hierarchy. In the kingdom of God, in King Jesus' kingdom, there, there's no hierarchy of people there are no earls and no viscounts and no knights and no serfs. But we who are with Jesus, who are faithful to Jesus, we share in the status of our King Jesus. We share in his righteousness. We share in his holiness. We share in his love. We share in his status. We share his very throne. Jesus says, I'm the only kind of king who will open up my throne to all of my followers and share everything that I have with you. Share all of my authority with you. I will share everything with you if only you'll open that door to me. And so here's, here's the second part of that good news. God wants us when he doesn't need us. Jesus is always there knocking at the door even when we've strayed from him. And it's not just as though he lets us in as second-class citizens when we have failed him. It's not just as though he, he welcomes us back in as, and we have to work our way back up to where we were before. The moment that we surrender our lives to Jesus, the moment that we say, yes, I want to belong to you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be friends with you, Jesus. I want to be in your kingdom. The moment that we do that, we are promoted to king status. 
We are promoted to royal status, to rule and reign with Jesus, to be one with him, to be united to him forever, because there is no hierarchy. Whether you've been following Jesus for two hours or for 50 years, none of us outranks another, but we are all brothers and sisters in Christ's kingdom, sharing in his status before the Father. We are all princes and princesses, every one of us royal before our God and Father. Jesus corrects us. Jesus calls us to himself, not to punish us, but to promote us, to make us one with him, to give us all of his status before God, and not to hold anything from our past over us. He wants us to be holy as he is holy. Not so that we can beat ourselves up over some standard that we can't possibly fulfill, but so that we can truly reflect the loving heart of our gracious and generous God to everyone that we meet. To live in the fullness of his love and acceptance. To find all of our identity, all of our our being in who he has called us. Not to settle with the second-class names that the world will give us. Not to settle for the, the small things of the world that will crumble beneath us. Not to settle for building our foundation on gold and wool and medicine and worldly success or even on the foundation of our families. But to have our lives truly and deeply founded upon the rock, the hard ground, the foundation of Jesus Christ and who God calls us through him. In Christ, you are loved, you are accepted, you are elevated, you are promoted. In Christ, God has given you everything that he has to give, opened up wide the doors to his kingdom and says, welcome, my child, it is all yours as well. This is who we get to be. This is who we get to be when we follow Jesus. This is who we get to be when we accept what Christ has done for us in the cross and the resurrection, when he paid for our sin and he elevated us to his own status. Today, the challenge is not to beat yourself up over what you haven't done or the ways that you failed. Today, the challenge is to step into the new identity that Christ gives you, a beloved child of God, welcomed, accepted, held. And to live in that reality. The more that we walk in our status as beloved children of God, the more we will become like the God who has given himself for us. And the more radical change we will see in the world around us as it looks more and more like the world that God wants it to be. A world of generosity and of kindness, of love, of acceptance, of peace, and of provision. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for calling us your own. Thank you, Jesus, that you are standing at the door and you are knocking no matter how far we have strayed from you. Thank you that we can found all that we are on who you are. Thank you, God, for pursuing us when we were your enemies, for coming after us when we had run astray. And God, I pray that today is the day that we root our lives in you, that we build our house on the foundation of Christ and we own the name that you call us, that we realize that we are not second-class citizens and that there is no hierarchy in your kingdom, but that we are all brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Today, Lord, let us open the door to you to repent, 
to turn from our sin and turn toward you so that we can be a light to the nations, so that we can be agents of your peace and of your provision for a world that is hungry for your love. Help us to reflect your love in everything that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.